This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Radical Technologies, The Design of Everyday Life by Adam Greenfield. Everywhere we turn, a startling new device promises to transfigure our lives. But at what cost? In this urgent and revelatory excavation of our information age, leading technology thinker Adam Greenfield forces us to reconsider our relationship with the networked objects, services, and spaces that define us. It is time to reevaluate the Silicon Valley consensus determining the future. We already depend on the smartphone to navigate every aspect of our existence. We're told that innovations, from augmented reality interfaces and virtual assistants to autonomous delivery drones and self-driving cars, will make life easier, more convenient, and more productive. 3D printing promises unprecedented control over the form and distribution of matter, while the blockchain stands to revolutionize everything from the recording and exchange of value to the way we organize the mundane realities of the day-to-day. And all the while, fiendishly complex algorithms are operating quietly in the background, reshaping the economy, transforming the fundamental terms of our politics, and even redefining what it means to be human. Having successfully colonized everyday life, these radical technologies are now conditioning the choices available to us in the years to come. How do they work? What challenges do they present to us as individuals and societies? Who benefits from their adoption? In answering these questions, Greenfield's timely guide clarifies the scale and nature of the crisis we now confront and offers ways to reclaim our stake in the future. Radical Technologies, The Design of Everyday Life by Adam Greenfield, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I don't know that I've ever met an American elected official as clear about connecting the domestic and foreign politics of U.S. empire as Hawaii State Representative Kaniela Ng. It's something that the right does so well and in such a twisted way, smearing athletes protesting police brutality and anti-war protesters as undermining the troops and perpetuating the lie that militarism abroad safeguards our rights at home. Ng is a model for what the left must do, which is to clearly explain that violence overseas facilitates our own oppression at home. Ng is a DSA member running in Hawaii's first congressional district, calling for an end to imperialism and rule by the wealthy, for housing rights, a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and Free College. And he's my guest today. Like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ng is backed by Justice Democrats. And like Ocasio-Cortez, Ng has released a powerful video made by the filmmakers at Means of Production. It's easy to blame Republicans, to blame Trump for our problems. But we have to look in the mirror. Who controls our state? Who's controlling our party? The people of Hawaii demand housing for all, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, free college and student debt cancellation now. 
a majority of people in Hawaii and across the nation support these ideas, but big donors don't. I'm the only candidate in this race who isn't taking corporate money. As a kid, I remember my grandma telling me stories of my ancestors, how they preserved our environment and took care of each other. She told me how our people were exploited by colonizers and forced to work on plantations. The people of Hawaii have come together and risen up before, and we can do it again. If my great-grandparents didn't stand up to the corporate establishment of their time, I would still be on the plantation. It's time for us to stand up, not just to leave a better future for our children or our grandchildren, live a better life ourselves. Ocasio-Cortez became an overnight celebrity when she defeated Joe Crowley. But what's most important is that you know who these candidates are before they win, because that's when they most need your help. Before we get rolling, this podcast is made possible by you, our listeners, who contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. And I mean that in the most concrete way possible. Your contributions allow me to do this podcast, which I started on a whim in late 2016, as my full-time job, to pay my producer, and to cover all manner of random overhead. So please go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution. $5 gets you access to our weekly newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either The ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of lefty books. And one more thing, for those of you within striking distance, we have a live recording of The Dig coming up in New York City, Friday, August 17th, 7 p.m. at Verso Books, which is at 20 J Street in Brooklyn. It's called Blockadia and Beyond, Left Climate Politics for the 20th Century, and it will feature Daniel Aldana Cohen, Ashley Dawson, Adria Lim, and Thea Rio Francos. I'll include a link to the event in the show notes. And so if you're in New York or nearby, please swing by. Otherwise, stay tuned for that episode on the podcast. Okay, here's Kaniella Ng. Daniela Ng, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. For listeners outside of Hawaii, say a little bit about who you are and why you're running for Congress. I saw in one interview that you summed up your program as, quote, we need to fight for aloha. Sure, yeah. I'm native Hawaiian. I'm a father. I'm well, a millennial father, which is kind of rare, especially in politics. Uh, and I'm a state legislator. But, uh, you know, I've kind of been against the grain when it comes to the Democratic Party in Hawaii. Uh, you know, I'm an unlikely politician. I don't really come from money or power. Uh, I first ran for office at 23 years old. Grew up uh, relying on government programs, working in pineapple fields, um, standing shoulder to shoulder with undocumented folks uh, in hotels, uh, in, working at Walmart. So, um, you know, that's I fight for working families because I come from one. And when you're in, pretty much like the term aloha, you know, means hi, goodbye, love, caring for one another. Uh, it's been exploited, I mean, obviously, by like, the tourist industry and 
but in politics, it's always the elites that use it against. Like they're like, why can't we all just get along? You know, have a law, kind of like how the national government <laughs> use the term civility. But it's like, so Sarah Huckabee Sanders would be like, why can't we have more aloha when I'm just trying to have a dinner? Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> I mean, use their own words. Like Winston Churchill used to say, you can't negotiate with a tiger when it, when your head is in its mouth, right? So, um, like, it, it's always the elites telling the oppressed to have aloha. And, you know, in this campaign, we're examining what aloha really means. Um, if there's an economy that doesn't work for certain people of certain races or genders or um, class, then where's the aloha in our society? So we need to fight for aloha. And that's actually where the Democratic Party got started from in Hawaii. We are segregated by sugar barons, by race. Um, so we couldn't even understand each other, uh, right? We couldn't organize. And we wore bongos. It's a Japanese word for number, identified by number and not name. Same slave, slave tags are used in the South. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia about the plantation days in Hawaii, but we should be nostalgic about the struggle because that's really what our lives are rooted in. It's what built our middle class. So, um, you know, we're trying to restore that heart and soul to what it means to be, to fight for working people and um, fight for a law. It seems like oxymoronically paradoxical in a way, but uh, it makes more sense than just, you know, blindly being civil. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I did want to ask you about how Hawaiian history informs your work as a leftist politician. It seems like it's so seldom recognized as part of American history, um, which I think goes some way towards explaining the why the racist conspiracy theory advanced by none other than our current president, that Hawaii-born Barack Obama was not born in the U.S. And it's this it's this history, as you just touched on, that is really, really important. It was the site of militant sugar labor organizing amongst Japanese Filipino plantation workers, forcefully seized as a U.S. colony in the interests of, of white settler elites. And in its long been this majority non-white state, which in and of itself poses a challenge to the white supremacist settler ideals that this country was founded on. So can you say a little more about about your your relationship to this this history and how it informs the the political agenda that you want to bring to DC? Sure, I, I think I just tweeted a few days ago that you know I didn't find my way into politics. People often ask how I got involved, um, but rather as a native Hawaiian, politics found me. It it threatened my very existence. So um, you know, the, I remember my first race. I was 22 years old, and I was like uh, nailing in my own lawn sign that somebody asked for and someone pulled out the side of the road and they go, Oh, you're Kaniella. You're, you're so clean cut. Yeah. I was like, I was expecting like, <laughs> a, a militant. I was like, all right, like this is what I'm dealing with. Like one of my first interactions with the constituent. Um, and I ran in a predominantly white, white district, uh, actually the most Caucasian in, in our state. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, if you knock on people's doors and you just like meet them where they are, uh, we can get into that later. Um, you'll win no matter what the makeup is demographically or um, ideologically. It was also very Republican. It was one of the few Republican districts in the state. Um, but <clears throat> I mean, in regards to like being a being a native, like my office now, it's on the fourth floor of the state capitol building in Hawaii, and it's it's just forty yards away from the palace, Iolani Palace. It's where the territorial government 
provisional government locked up our queen, our last queen, in, in top of her uh, in her room, and she wasn't able to leave. So that's when she all those beautiful songs like Aloha Oi. <clears throat> but it's just that feeling of being a representative American politician, but also Native Hawaiian, and looking across and seeing one of the three only sole American, um, sole Hawaiian flags flying without an American flag next to it. It's really powerful and um, it's just very weird and, yeah. and ironic in ways. Well, you already are a state legislator and struggling to be a uh, representative in the, the U.S. Congress of, of a country that colonized Hawaii, but maybe what your politics promise is sort of a a revenge of the colonized that benefits the colonizer as well, ultimately. Right. I mean, you mentioned that you know Trump doesn't see Trump may not see Hawaii as a state. Well, many Native Hawaiians don't see Hawaii as a state. You know, many continue to just recognize us as an occupied nation uh, that still has its sovereignty and they're fighting to be recognized as independent. Uh, so that still exists. So I like to say, like, to, to those folks, that could be true for, for, for like, you know, and I hear you. I know exactly where you're coming from. It makes sense. But no matter no matter what's the case, the decisions that's happening in the state capitol and in Congress are still affecting us. Uh, you know, there's still actual power there. And either we're going to be making decisions or they are. So uh, we need a seat at the table. And I think that's what folks are starting to realize. Hawaiians have historically, uh, Native Hawaiians have historically not wanted to vote as much because of this disenfranchisement. We're realizing that, uh, you know, things are only getting worse. And uh, we do need to continue to fight for uh, our sovereignty, but we also need to actually uh, shift power from the places that they be now back to us. How did you make your way to the state legislature as a young activist? And what have you accomplished there? And not just accomplished there, but also what have you what have you fought to accomplish even in cases where you didn't succeed? Sure. So, I mean, I, I started off, I, I, I was really lucky after my father passed away um, in public schools. I, I was able to get into Kamehameha, which is a private school for Native Hawaiians only, which is continually under threat um, by, you know, the white supremacist forces. But uh, I got into this school, shaped me up. I had to tuck in my shirt, you know, and it was, it was very strict. Um and I was able to get into college. I was first generation college graduate. But it was during coming out of school days where there was like a lawsuit that threatened our school's existence completely. Uh, so that kind of got me involved in like the native activism uh, and that transition through college to, you know, my, a Republican governor cutting our university about $130 million. So it would have took me two more years to graduate with a music degree and I couldn't afford it. So I ran for student president. Uh, we fought to restore some cuts. And I realized like, you know, you can actually do a lot uh, in this politics stuff. And when I saw a Tea Party guy got elected in my home island in 2012. In which island's that? That was Maui. And he was selling off like the rights to our island to these mainland corporations that started his campaign, um, that funded his campaign. So um, you know, I decided it's now or never. The dude was Tea Party. He uh, wanted to cut all these programs I relied on. So I uh, took a shot, knocked on 15,000 doors. I was working at Four Seasons at the time from 4 a.m. to noon, full-time shift. And then just uh, 
yeah, maniacally <laughs> door to door until sunset and uh, wore off a few pairs of shoes and we ended up winning by 26 points. And it was a Republican district. It was a Republican district, but here's the thing about about the, the left, a lot of things I'm seeing happening in our movement is we do have the truth on our side. We got the answers, but we can't just be preaching it from a pedestal. We gotta be meeting people where they are. And frankly, most folks aren't that, or they're not always thinking about our issues or just like these issues generally, they just- People just live lives a lot. They just live, yeah, they're busy. They're barely scraping by and they just, yeah, I mean, they're thinking about how they're getting ripped off by their cable companies. Um, and when you talk to them at their door, there's they care about like trash pickup and potholes. And there's no Republican or Democratic potholes. You know, there's no there's no far right or socialist trash pickup. So, um, you know, you, you address their concerns. You actually listen to them. And then after they earn your trust, then you can start saying, hey, have you ever thought of things this way? And I think not only did we win our district, but we shifted it uh, over the years, over six years in office to become a lot more progressive than it was. And what sort of stuff have you been been working on in the state legislature, both successfully and uh, valiantly, but but without success? Some things, you know, are low hanging fruit and you just got to support it. Like there was a big marriage equality special session and. You know, I, I helped championing that through same as a minimum wage increase back in 2013. It was before the fight for 15 started popping up all over. So we were really aggressive going for 1250. Um, it ended up at 1010, had to do some compromise. And it, it's pretty bogus when you don't tie it to inflation, those sorts of policies, because yeah. then it just keeps coming up. Uh, so we're still dealing with that now. We passed the nation's first 100% renewable energy goal. Um, that was by 2045, so it's too far out, but you know we got it going um, first state. Um, I wrote and passed same-day voter registration to help young people come out. Um, my partner and I, we wrote and passed a bill to give un undocumented people's driver's license to allow them to drive and not fear getting pulled over from just going to work or bringing their kids to school. Which is often how people uh, end up in ICE custody is for small-time arrests like that. Exactly. And that was, a, you know, that was my opponent's. Doug Chin, that was his MO at the time uh, as a CCA lobbyist. Uh, so, you know, all these issues, we, like those are the low-hanging fruits, but we also went and proposed things like rent control and a $22 minimum wage because that's really what a living wage would be. And if you want to justify not passing it, then give us something else, you know, so we can live and survive. Uh, so we always try to push the envelope uh, and the conversation. So I think the first time we talked about rent control in over 30 years. And this year, we've seen five different legislators introduce similar measures because it was just so damn popular. Um, you know, it didn't pass because there's no tenant organizing in Hawaii. But maybe if we keep talking on the media, uh, some activists will come out and start knocking on doors of their building and uh, get some tenants together so they can actually compete against the realtors and landlords. So, uh, you know, that's that's kind of how I see like legislating. It's a lot of this work is more than just elections and legislation. It's movement building. And, you know, we're just kind of that last piece of the puzzle. And like the biggest things that happened across America, the civil rights, voting rights, suffrage, like that wasn't, that wasn't the case. That wasn't done by the skilled politicians maneuvering like LBJ or whatever. It's, it's 
it's the people, right? Yeah. They like they they force it to happen, and politicians just take the credit. So I, I recognize that and see how can I like help amplify the movement and those voices. In a recent debate, you you parted with other candidates in criticizing the role of the military in Hawaii, and you've also criticized U.S. Empire. Explain what you see as the relationship between U.S. imperialism abroad and the place of the military in the Hawaiian society and economy and and what you want to do in Congress on both fronts. There was a proposed reduction by the Pentagon in 2015 of troops on Oahu. It was was like the one issue where the unions, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, so many, especially the more corporate unions, various elite economists, they all got together and they said, we need to um, oppose this by all means because it'll take a hit at our GDP. But uh, the thing is, we don't have an underpopulation problem on our island. And while a reduction of troops may affect our GDP, not our GDP per capita, not the amount of money that regular folks actually have in their pockets, um, first of all. Second, our most polluted sites in Hawaii are on bases. Three EPA Superfund sites are on military bases today, um, including Red Hill, this underground fuel facility that was um, this leaking these poisons into our, into our water supply today. It's been there for years and years. Um, and uh, rental allowance, you have these officers that have housing on base, but they opt into housing out of base and receive over up to $3,200 per month for rent, which of course drives up rent for everybody else from rent seeking landlords. Uh, and we already have a rental and housing crisis here. Uh, so it doesn't make much sense economically, but morally, I think it's time we think about what it means to have a war-based economy, that if our economy, yeah. that if war were to stop, our economy would stop that our livelihoods depend on the deaths of others. It's, it's just abhorrent when you, when you actually think about what that means. Um, and, you know, we need to transition away to have an economy based, in, based on peace. And to, the second part of the question is, like, yes, there's a lot of talk about anti-interventionalism, uh, finally, on the left, and even by politicians. Uh, that's good, but anti-imperialism is even better. And... You know, as Native Hawaiians, we know what it's like to be displaced from our homeland. So whether it's a war on profit or a war on drug, um, a war for, dr- for on drugs or a war on terror, uh, it's really wars for profit, uh, and it's wars that's causing indigenous people all over the world to suffer just like we have. Um, so it's about making those connections and realizing that, uh, you know, it's our duty to let these refugees and immigrants in and stop causing. <laughs> Uh, the refugee crisis in the first place, because uh, in the end, uh, it's all about it's all about the money. Speaking of problems caused by people seeking money, <laughs> climate change is another priority for you. You ha- have said that current projections show that quote most of Waikiki will be underwater within my two-year-old son's lifetime. Climate scientists now are saying, especially in Hawaii, they're saying that we're going to see a three-foot sea level rise by the year two thousand one hundred. And we really only have about 15 years to act. So we've been one of the champions of um, Green New Deal proposal. And the goal is 100% renewable energy by 2035 nationwide. And we're going to achieve that through a federal jobs guarantee. 
uh, to you know retrofit buildings, plant trees, uh, tra transition folks out of coal and oil, and give them even better jobs in advanced energy. Uh, so it's it's a win-win for the environment and economy. And you know in Hawaii, those two things are one and the same. You're a face of the left in in Hawaii. Alexandria Casio Cortez is now a face of the left in in New York. It, it's quite a change from two years ago when we were living under this this Bernie bro narrative put out there by bipartisans of Hillary Clinton that socialists and leftists out there were were white bros. And Hawaii was really a flashpoint in this debate. In 2016, after Bernie won caucuses in Washington, Hawaii, and Alaska, CNN reported, quote, these caucus states, largely white and rural, are the type of places Sanders traditionally does well. In order to win the nomination, he must replicate the success in other, more ethnically diverse states that hold primaries, as he did in Michigan last month. And in response, uh, Leslie Lee III created this viral hashtag, Bernie made me white. And it was this huge moment when I think a lot of leftists and Sanders voters of color came out and were just like, enough of this idea that white people are the only socialists or leftists. What do you make of, of sort of the misrecognition of Hawaii as like a white state being the starting point for that whole thing? Yeah, I think we had the biggest win for Bernie. We're on 70 percent uh, and we are the least white state. <laughs> That's clear enough. But when it comes to like when it comes to like working people and people of color, like when you've been oppressed and over generations, you do tend to like I, I grew up internalizing a lot of racism like in on Maui. You want to be like that surfer with blonde hair. Like that's what's cool. You know, that's that's who the girls like. Um, and that's real. And you want to and you want to blame yourself and you want to blame people that are less fortunate than you. That's how Donald Trump won. Right. He scapegoated Muslims and um, and immigrants and Mexicans and women. And that's it's like. It's like human nature because it's, it's psychologically it's easier than blaming these like super rich people who you really want to be um, that have so much power over you. So so there is something kind of real in that, like maybe um, folks with more privilege had more options to like jump into socialism or, you know, leftism. Um, and it just sometimes it takes a little bit more organizing and uh, saying like, hey, all like they're making us fight over crumbs under the table when these fat cats are eating the entire pie. Um, and really the only way we're going to get up there is by coming together, like immigrants, indigenous people, poor people, uh, and if, and, and rising up, otherwise, you know, we're just crowds in a bucket. And that's, that's the message that, you know, Bernie, the Bernie campaign, uh, kind of lit a fire under a lot of us organizers, but it was like organizers of color, like, and that, that really were able to speak to our neighbors and, and get it going. I want to turn to some of the the concrete issues around around the campaign. First, I've got to ask you, you've taken some hits in local media for campaign finance violations. Can you say a little bit about what happened and how, how you're handling it? And then lastly, what the sort of, I guess, like damage control process is so that it doesn't, because this is the kind of thing that political journalists really fixate on, how, how you're managing it so that it doesn't swamp your message. Yeah, I mean, I, I was my first race and actually all my state house races, it was just me. Um, you know, I didn't have the establishment helping me. So campaign manager, finance director, fundraiser, 
accountant, field director, press candidate. It was all myself. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of that day that I mentioned, I would have to just do all everything myself on online. Uh, so I made mistakes. Uh, you know, I owned up to them. I didn't blame it on whoever was listed as my treasurer who was really legally liable. I just, you know, made sure that it fell on me. Um, and there was no misuse, like all the money that went in, went out for proper usage. It was just misreporting. Uh, and then the bank records show that. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately that didn't get covered in local media. Uh, and we went ahead and, and changed, um, you know, corrected it. I'm going to have to pay a hefty fine, I think over $15,000. I'm not sure how I'm going to afford that, but, um, you know, I'll figure it out. And, you know, we hired a team of professionals to make sure this doesn't happen again. And this was in my state races, so it's not quite the same as um, the FEC. In the FEC, like they're saying, um, like some of these rules don't even exist in the, in the FEC. Like they allow candidates to even use their funds for personal use, like daycare, and, and they can collect a salary. And it makes sense because working people can actually compete that way uh, rather than just a bunch of retired bankers and lawyers who can afford to not work running for office. So, uh, you know, this is state, state level races. Um, and you know, I, I apologize every time I get a chance. I, I, I'm often ashamed that I let like some volunteers down and people close to me, uh, but I try my best. And I'd like to say that if I could go back, it, would, it wouldn't happen, but like, it was really tough. Like I, I tried my, my hardest, so. So how um, do you think in terms of like the news cycle in the political debate in Hawaii that you you're able to successfully push beyond that like address it and then and then move on I hope so uh you know I mean the corporate media ever since I mean they've always been sort of friendly to me while I was in office but this campaign we went really hard uh, naming names uh, locally like some of these big five corporations some of the same missionary families that had oligarchical control of Hawaii um, they're still in control of our politics here. So, you know, we're, we're naming their names like Alexander Baldwin, corporations like Monsanto, uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin. Like these are huge forces in Hawaii politics. They also happen to be the advertisers that pay the reporters salaries, you know. So um, very different. It's just been a really interesting uh, shift I've seen um, from being like sort of a media darling uh, as like a young politician to – um, this pariah, but I think people, folks are getting it. They understand that the same, that donors are advertisers and there's just this cartel of folks that continue to control our state and, uh, we need to rise up and social media has been helping a lot to get that out despite, uh, what traditional media has been saying. The last polls that I saw reported, you're, you're polling like respectably, but behind what, what needs to happen in your analysis between now and election day, which I guess is, is that August 11th? Well, election day is August 11th, but 60% of people vote early in Hawaii. Oh, wow. And so what happened is uh, a lot of momentum. People need to come out. Momentum has been on our side. I think the reason why they dropped a lot of opposition early is because we were picking up steam really quick. Like we had a viral a video that was posted on Facebook and got over 9 million views. You know, just like a campaign outro, like a, a forum, a debate outro that I gave. It was just really grassroots. But the message was, people are so ready for a message that it just blew up. So I think the the opposite, the apple dump they call it in the in the business, uh, was purposely three two months early for our campaign uh, to, to kind of stifle that momentum. 
And, you know, when you're money on a message without taking corporate money and you're sort of anti-corruption, uh, it's they don't have to paint you as corrupt. They just have to say you're one of us, like you're just like the rest of us. And I think that was their angle. So, uh, you know, we're going to expose why that could happen um, and just continue on the message. Like we let's focus on our human needs and what's been missing in the political discourse and how so many of us are suffering in Hawaii. 80% of us are paycheck to paycheck now. Uh, home ownership is like a, it's a pipe dream because it's eight, it's almost $800,000 now for the median, which means you got to be making $200,000 out of high school and, or college to afford a home. It's it's absurd. And, you know, we can do better. Like, it's, scarcity is not a problem. We have these luxury condos popping up every, every month. Um, like, individual units going for $20 million. Like, the money's there. It's just being siphoned up. Um, siphoned up by the ultra-rich, uh, by we're building for profit and not for human need. Uh, and I think people are getting that, and we just got to keep talking about it. And um, we might not have as much money as my opponents. I think we raised around two hundred or $300,000. But uh, we have the volunteers. Like People are just excited. The working people from Hawaii are out. Uh, we're knocking on doors every day. So uh, I think if we continue to have those conversations, uh, despite despite the mistakes I made in the past, uh, it, we will win. Because ultimately, it's not about me, right? It's about the, the issues that uh, that people care about and the things we need. And my last question is just what the what your current campaign organization looks like. What groups are involved? What does the field operation look like? And and what can my listeners do if they want to help? All right, yeah, this, uh, our campaign has some of the best talent across the nation. Campaign manager, Yang Jun Cho, she was involved in all of us. Uh, and then Justice Democrats, DSA, uh, called DSH, the Democratic Socialist of Honolulu. They, uh, they changed their name from DSA because in solidarity with Native Hawaiians who didn't identify as American. <clears throat> they're, they're a huge force in our volunteer uh, capacity. And then there's folks from Our Revolution and Justice Democrats and Wolfpack and a lot of the folks who want to get money out of politics and a few unions, but not really like the unions who are part of the Democratic Party machine here. Uh, so it's just real grassroots organizing uh, that's been getting us going. And we do have a really strong out-of-state team, too, because there's, you know, we're part, part of something larger. Like this is a... Uh, a leftist wave that's going across the whole nation. So we, there are ways if you, online. If you go to my website, kanielaing.com, where you can sign up to make phone calls uh, or do texting from um, wherever you are. Um, but most importantly, like we need, we need money. Of course, uh, we rely. Is I think the record was eighteen hundred individual donors for this seat. Uh, we already hit uh, almost eight thousand wow. now. So. We've smashed that record. Our average is under thirty dollars, uh, just like you know, just like the Sanders campaign. Uh, and we can't do it without just working people chipping in, just five, ten, twenty dollars at a time. Uh, you know, we I, we can't if like call time doesn't work for me. Like the DCCC candidate says, uh, consultant says that you got to be spending six hours a day asking donors for money. Well, when your average donor is 20 something dollars and you're only c connecting with seven people an hour on the phones it's not going to pencil <laughs> out you know you might as well be knocking on doors 
So, you know, I don't have those $1,000 plate fundraisers. I, I just, it, it really means a lot. And I know that the people who give aren't rich folks. Um, so, you know, every dollar, like we don't deal with consultants or that kind of thing. We just, we know our message is the winning one. We just use it to feed our volunteers um, and get to the doors and, uh, you know, actually reach the voters. Kaniela Ng, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Daniel. Kaniela Ng is a state legislator in Hawaii and is running in Hawaii's first congressional district. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, if the emancipation of the working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, how are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs, playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And last but by no means least, do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Oh.